was able to say with quite a good deal of confidence to the last congregation that they were around 50 years ago and witnessed a significant event. Not quite sure of the same confidence. Well, there's a few of you. Uh, this time in this congregation, but as you know, 50 years ago last night, 50 years ago, 1969, September the, or July the 20th, the eagle landed. You know that, don't you? The eagle landed on the moon. And in many senses, looking at it last night, looking at it over the last few weeks, 50 years doesn't take long to get flying past. 50 years flies past. Five years ago, perhaps, but 50? I was only in nappies. But I know by no means. But it's incredible. 50 years ago since Apollo 11 mission fulfilled its purpose and landed on the moon and Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong descended onto the moon's surface and Neil Armstrong spoke those words that have become part of our vocabulary. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Very significant statement in many ways. Well crafted by somebody. I'm sure Neil was part of it well-crafted and well-spoken. But 50 years ago, men landed on the moon. Michael Collins was still in the, the mothership, if you like, circling around the moon. He didn't get onto the surface. It seems so short a time. And it's been a challenging time over the years since then. A challenging time because, not least because there are conspiracy theories still abroad. Conspiracy theories that still have the support of 6% uh, apparently of the United States population with another 15% not too sure as to whether it all happened in a Hollywood studio. And it was all deceit, swing, uh, all smoke and mirror stuff. And they still believe that strongly. So strongly that one of them conf confronted Buzz Aldrin back a few years ago and called him a liar and a cheat. And Buzz Aldrin's response was he hit him a dig in the nose. <laughs> or, sorry, probably in the American papers it said he, he, he gave him a smack in the face or something like that. But hit him a dig in the nose sounds more fun. But they still believe it was all, all done in a TV studio in, somewhere in Hollywood as a political statement, a political act, because politics was part of it. Richard Nixon, Tricky Dicky, as those of us that were around in those days, he was what he was called. Richard Nixon was president. John Kennedy had began the space race. Richard Nixon was there when the moon landing happened. And you never know what he would be up to. He was capable of anything, that boy, I think. Uh, but people still think he was scheming politically. They still think it was part and parcel of the race to the space and as part of the Cold War of the day and generation. I happen to believe it was true. Now, I might be wrong in that, but I'm willing to take the risk. <laughs> Most of the population of the world is willing to take the risk with me. But true or not, it was a magnificent, well, true, if it was true, it was a magnificent achievement. Magnificent achievement to, to take a little bit of tin, a tin can, from the Earth to 140,000 miles to the moon's surface in four days and land on the moon safely. And even Neil Armstrong guided it down because this chosen landing place proved to be too rough, so he guided it down. It was man done in terms of man landing rather than computer landing. Apparently the power of the computer that took Apollo 11 to the moon is less than in my computer or your computer or your laptop at home. It was early days of computers as well as early days of space travel. But what a magnificent achievement in so many ways. 
and it has created a whole fresh interest, at least for a short time, in terms of space and space travel. And I heard the Vice President, Mike Pence, of the United States announced last night that they hope to send somebody else back to the moon, a man and a woman this time, within the next five years. We'll see, maybe they'll achieve it quite quickly. But it is only a wee tin can flying through the Earth, flying through the atmosphere, flying through the universe, landing on the moon. A little tin can. But it awoke all sorts of curious things too, in terms of the force of gravity. The force of gravity was part and parcel of what it was all about. The force of gravity holding the rocket to the ground and needing such tremendous power, uh, tremendous power to drive off into space, overcome the pull of gravity to pull it back down again. The force of gravity that was lessened as they went further and further out into space, they couldn't dance around, but we've seen it in other spacecrafts and we've seen it in the space station, which is only 250 miles, I think, or 25 miles off the surface of the Earth. And uh, you can see people dancing about inside the capsule because gravity has become less of an important, less of a pull in their lives. Gravity is so important. And you've seen it in the moonwalk when instead of walking, they looped because they were so much lighter on the moon. You know, there's a great diet thing here. If you weigh about 200 pounds, say, an average sort of a man, 14 and a half stone, I'm bigger than that around the belly. But if you're about 14 and a half stone, 200 pounds, on Earth, the force of gravity contributes significantly to that. On the moon, on the moon's surface, you'd weigh what? 17 pounds. What a weight loss. What a magnificent way to lose weight. Might cause you a few more problems, but it's one of the effects because it exposes the whole thing about gravity. It opens up the whole questions about gravity. Gravity is such an important thing in space travel, and overcoming the pull of gravity is part and parcel of how you get rockets into space and how you get people into, the, into cap, space capsules and onto the moon. And what is gravity? Gravity is what holds it all together. Gravity is what holds the Earth together, that holds the atoms of the Earth together. Gravity is what holds you and I to the surface of the Earth. This is not science fiction, it's science fantasy. But say you could switch off gravity, we would all become like little floating things. Space fantasy, there's never a hope of it happening. But you begin to drift off into, into outer space, and with the flow of the, with the centrifugal force of the moon going round, you'd be thrown off the surface of the Earth. Somebody put it a wee bit more poetically than me. Everything from ants to elephants. Can't read my own writing. Everything from Earth, from ants to elephants, from electrons to elephants. Let me get it right. Everything from ants to antelopes, from electrons to elephants, from skylarks to skyscrapers, all floating off into space, all floating off from the surface of the Earth because the force of gravity has been switched off. Without gravity, we couldn't exist. Without gravity, the Earth couldn't exist. Without gravity, we couldn't live on the Earth. And gravity is such an important force. Where did it come from? Who created it? Nobody invented it. Nobody created it as a human, a human exercise. It's something built into God's creation, something that's reflected in our Bible reading this morning because it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of creation, but it talks about 
all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. That talks about the wonderful beauty of the world, the wonderful beauty of the universe. One of the things that came back fairly soon after the moon landing was that photograph that's still around of the blue earth, the blue planet. Beautiful, it captured the imagination of many of us in those particular days when it was first shown in color. Beauty, wonder, amazement, but also this scientific magnificence, the inner magnificence of something like an inner force like gravity. All of this was brought to the surface. All of this was brought out by, this, by space travel. And Professor David Wilkinson, who's a professor of, of theology and science, that basically he says this, exploring the universe through science, its, its consistencies and laws, is to explore the one who sustains it. Science in this, in this sense, true science, is a Christian ministry. Gravity is something worth studying as a scientist because it glorifies Jesus and shows us as Jesus the one who holds it all together. All of this fits into what basically Jesus is described as in Colossians chapter 1 that Stephen read earlier on. This is what he read. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, that doesn't mean he was the first human born. It means he was firstborn in terms of he was there before creation was brought into existence. He was the firstborn in terms of the fact that he was the inheritor of it all. For by him all things were created, by him, by Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's worth thinking through what your picture of God creating the world is. Sometimes we picture it and share with other people the kind of picture of that it's like a watch that requires a watchmaker. The intricacies of its work, workings, the magnificence of its, of its cogs and wheels and springs. It requires a watchmaker to make a watch. It requires a watchmaker who then winds up the watch and sets it going. And that's the picture many people have as a picture that helps us understand how God is involved in creation. That there's a, a prime mover, there's a, a first mover, if you like, before the other parts were able to be created. A first mover, a prime mover. But there's not enough in that. That's deism rather than Christian theology, rather than biblical theology. Because not only does God, if you like, not only is God the watchmaker, not only is God the one who winds it up, but Jesus is the one who keeps it going, who sustains it. Jesus is the one who keeps the universe going. Jesus is the one who makes the universe work. Jesus is the one who, if you like, oils the wheels all the time. He's the provider God. He's the creator God, but also the provider God, the sustaining God. He keeps things together and keeps things moving on. He holds all things together. That's a picture of creation in God's hands, in Jesus' hands, holding all things together. That gives confidence about the future of the world and the creation. It gives confidence that Jesus is able, if he created it, if he made it happen, if he holds it in his hands, he is able to hold it together. And in the whole talk nowadays about environmental damage and about 
climate change and everything else to do with it, where there's much truth, I think, but not only truth, there's also hype and false truth, and false truth, false, false, false news. There's also hype in there galore and panic making stuff. There are things happening in our world. The future of our world is not certain. When you read the Bible, it never was going to be certain. The longer we go on, the less certain it becomes because it's got an end point. There is an end point to the world, to the creation. There's the new creation to come, but there's an end point to the old because of sin destroying things. But Jesus holds it in his hands. He holds all things together. And that means even environmental change. That means even the, the, the huge changes that are going to be happening in terms of ice caps and other things. Jesus holds it in his hands. It might be a simple picture, but the simple picture's got depths of theology to it that go far beyond anything science can deal with. Jesus is the one who sustains it all. And in that sense, as David Wilkerson talked about true science being a Christian ministry, there is, if you like, false science and bad science, but good science is exploring God's mind after him in a very real sense and seeing Jesus as the heart of it all. There is an old song, those of you that remember it happening because you were alive in 1969 would remember a song that was around at that stage and it's been around for decades since. It's a simple little thing, it's a children's song, but it's got great truth in it. He holds the whole world in his hands. That's Jesus sustains all things. Jesus holds together all things. He holds the whole world in his hands. We can be confident of Jesus. We can trust Jesus. It doesn't mean we be lazy and careless about environmental issues. It doesn't mean we don't take seriously the challenges around us. But we need the confidence of Jesus, the confidence in Jesus that he's holding it all together. And we can rejoice and celebrate him Biblical theology has got two purposes to it, I believe, and this passage of scriptures reflects that. It's got the purpose of glorifying Jesus, appointing up who Jesus is in all his glory, and Paul does that magnificently in this chapter. Uh, he is the firstborn over all creation. In him all the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him he wanted to reconcile all things to himself. He is the one who has all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, all things created by him and for him. We glorify Jesus as we read scripture like that. We glorify Jesus when we worship him because that's who he is, this firstborn of creation who we worship and adore. The two purposes, glorify Jesus and encourage and upbuild the people of God. And there's very little more encouraging and upbuilding than the words of scripture that tell us that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the one who is the beginning, the middle, and the end of it all. Jesus, the magnificent supreme God. That's what Paul is seeking to expound here, the supremacy of Christ over all. Over all false gods, over all images made to look like gods, over all idols, over all other religions in a sense, Jesus is supreme because he's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is Lord of all in creation terms. And we worship him and adore him for that purpose, in that, in that reality. But it also builds us up, because we see that if Jesus can hold together creation, he can hold together my life if I trust it to him. 
the miracles in the gospel stories that we call the nature miracles, like the calming of the seas in the wind and the storm, like the walking on water, like the using of five five barley loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 people, like the turning of water into wine. These nature miracles are demonstrations of the power of Jesus over creation. He holds it all together. He is its Lord, and it obeys his wishes and his wills. The nature miracles are pictures into Jesus as Lord of all. But they're also there to build up the church, those miracles and this glorifying of Jesus. Because the church in 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 Colossae, the church was only a baby church. It was only in existence, maximum 20 years, probably not as much as that, when Paul wrote this letter. And Paul was writing this letter because this church was under attack. This church was in trouble. Not from outside forces like the Roman Empire at this stage. That was still to come where they'd have to worship or uh, proclaim that Caesar is Lord and bow before Caesar. That's yet to come. But there were other false teachers and heretical, heretical teachers that come into the church. And they were seeking to make less of Jesus. To make Jesus seem so much more ordinary than the Christ that was resurrected from the dead. The one who was the creator and the one who was the resurrected one. Make Jesus look just so ordinary, just like all the rest. Their teachings were towards that end. And as such, Paul wanted them to see that this false teaching is challenged and overcome by the fact that Jesus is Lord of creation and Jesus is Lord of the church. He is the head of the church, which is his body. He's talking about the universal church here, not just the wee church in Colossae. He is the head of the church. And as such, he holds the church together. And that we song again, that we, he holds the whole world in his hands. He holds you and me brother in his hands. He holds you and me sister in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Jesus holds the church in the face of persecution, fierce persecution. Persecution still affects the church today in the world. There's persecution in many countries of the world, in the East, in the South in particular, which is literal, physical persecution. I was at New Wine uh, this week and had several seminars and teaching sessions on the persecution of the church with open doors, the ministry, the, the, the mission society with the ministry to persecuted Christians. Pakistan, Egypt, India, those were places that were touched upon as places where there's great persecution of the church. In India at the moment, the BJP, the party that's in power, has an extremist element that basically has declared, not that they wish this, has declared that they will ensure that by 2020, sorry, 2021, give them an extra year, 2021, all Christians will be driven out of India, along with all Muslims and all non-Hindus. The church is under tremendous pressure in many parts of the world, physical persecution. We in the West are under persecution of a different sort because we are under a persecution as a false teaching, heretical teaching that seeks to make less of Jesus, that seeks to undermine Jesus, whom we preach as the Lord of all and King of kings and um, the creator of God, the firstborn. It seeks to make less of Jesus, make him just another little God, the head of another little religion. That's not Jesus. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the resurrected Lord. He has risen from the dead, the first to do so. 
Yes, there are others who were restored to life by Jesus' ministry, like Lazarus and the son of the widow of Nain. But Jesus is the first of a new breed, the first of the resurrected ones, the first of many multitudes, multitudes upon multitudes, who will be resurrected from the dead when Jesus returns. Jesus is more than just a tin-pot little God. He is the mighty Lord, Lord of all, supreme over creation, supreme over the church. And he does have the whole world, and he does have you and me in his hands. And in a sense, Jesus' hands around the church, wrapped around the church, are like a spiritual gravity, like the spiritual force of gravity, where Jesus promises that he'll lose none. He'll lose none of those who he's called. None of the elect will be lost. That's not universalism. This is talking about the elect of God, not just the creation. None, he will, he will lose none. There'll be none drift off into outer space. Do you remember a song from the 1969 again? Uh, some of you remember it. It's a David Bowie song called Major Tom's. Just thinking of drifting off into outer space as a person. Ground control to Major Tom's. I'm not going to sing it. You'll go right. Ground, ground control have realized they've lost touch with Major Tom's in a little tin hot, little tin can floating around the universe, floating around the space. Your circuit's dead. There's something wrong. Can you hear me, Major Tom's? Can you hear me, Major Tom's? And he sings back, here am I, sitting in a tin can, far above the moon. Planet Earth is blue, and there's nothing I can do. Lost, drifting off into nothingness. Lostness, just losing it all and losing everything. That's not going to happen to believers in Jesus, because Jesus holds the church in his hands, and he'll lose none of those he's called. Lose none of them. We'll not be lost. That's not a, a recipe for complacency. That's not a recipe for being saved, satisfied, and stuck. That's not a recipe for sitting on your hands doing nothing, spiritually speaking. But it's a great truth-building confidence that Jesus holds us in his hands and none can pluck me. None can pluck you. None can pluck us if we were the elect of God. None can pluck us from his hands. So we thank God for Jesus. We celebrate with Paul and the Colossian Christians that Jesus is Lord of creation, supreme over creation. Nothing's going to happen outside of his will. I hold that in confidence in the whole crisis, the environmental crisis, the climate change crisis. Nothing's going to happen outside of his will. Nothing's going to be beyond Jesus, able to cope and hold it together. Nothing. Nothing in the earth or in the universe is going to happen in a way that destroys what Jesus has created outside of his will. And the confidence that I have in that, I have confidence in him also, that nothing's going to happen outside of his will for the church. The church of Jesus Christ, then in Colossae, 2,000 years ago, now in Bangor, and 2,000 years on, nothing's going to happen outside of his will to destroy the church. He will sometimes, as he did with the churches in, in, in Asia, in Asia Minor, the churches in Asia Minor, like Ephesus, uh, other churches around Colossae, Ephesus and Smyrna and Philip, Philadelphia and the likes. He did withdraw the candlestick from the church, but he did it. But nothing happens outside of his will. To you or to me or to us, rejoice and celebrate that great truth.
So we look at this passage of scripture in the light of what we're celebrating, if you like, in an anniversary of 50 years of space, of conquering space in a sense, if you can call it that, of getting the man to the moon. And we see Jesus. We see Jesus glorified and uplifted as, as, in that particular thing. Not least because it's all to do with gravity. And gravity is all to do with Jesus, holding everything together in his hands. We see Jesus as the firstborn of resurrected ones, as the Lord of the church, and we celebrate and rejoice in him. But even under persecution, we trust in him and leave him, leave it up to him to take us out, to take us through, to take us forward. In him, even the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. May we rejoice and celebrate in Jesus, the true Jesus, the living Lord. Let's pray.